Welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode, we're doing the maths on household finance. talking to Dr Neve Mulcahy, Alice Tong-Shi Research Fellow at Lucy Cavendish College, Cambridge, and an economic sociologist based at CRASH. Her new book, Class and Inequality in the Time of Finance, looks at how ordinary people in the UK are struggling with increasing levels of personal debt, battered by a banking crisis, austerity, and now a global pandemic. Working in collaboration with local councils, this is real-world research and I went along to meet her at Lucy Cavendish to find out how we build fairness into the system. Dr. Mulcahy, thank you for meeting me here. Hello, Catherine. Yes, very nice to see you. We're here in the garden, quite a lot of building works going on. So we're sort of torn between this beautiful Cambridge scene with all the daffodils out and then this load of construction. Cranes, diggers, massive pile of bricks higher than us. What's going on here? So there's a building that's currently being taken down in order to construct uh, a new development that is meant to house 72 new student rooms with the hope that the college will move from having a student body of about 450 students to nearly double that at about 900 or 1,000 by 2025, 2026. Now, it's not just any old students though, is it? Because Lucy Cavendish has made a really bold claim that by 2025-26, they've said their student body would be, quote, broadly representative of UK society. That's a massive commitment to widening access. And your research area, of course, is based very heavily on inequality, access, life chances, all of that kind of thing, which is why it's so interesting that your own college, Lucy Cavendish, is doing this incredible work right now as we're standing here to deal with that. Yes, and one of the research goals that they're prioritizing both in their intake of postgraduate students and with fellows is the sustainability goals that the UN has laid out, which includes things like a reduction of poverty, health inequality, gender inequality, financial inequality. So it really does represent um, an interest in research that is not necessarily instrumentalist in its understanding of what useful is, but something that aims to contribute to the broadening of opportunities and the general improvement of life chances on a global scale. And as an economic sociologist, that must be music to your ears, right? Very much so. Well, let's go and talk some more about it inside, if that's okay. So, Neve, as we're walking along now towards your rooms, I guess one of the things that's good about the university is that it's trying very hard and very publicly to widen access, to address inequality. But at the same time, it's situated in a city that has been called the most unequal city in the UK. And it got that name in 2018 in a report um, for the Centre for Cities think tank. and. 
it's really stark. I mean, in Cambridge, the top, I believe, 6% of earners take home 19% of the total income, and the bottom 20% of the population here get just 2%. Those kind of figures make us understand why it's not just a university problem, it's a city-wide problem and it's growing bigger all the time, isn't it? Yes, and I think one of the problems and one of the places where it intersects um, is that it's quite expensive to live here in part because of the presence of the university in the city. Right. And so as a result, the cost of living is something that many on lower income scales can't afford and can't really meet. And as a result, you find that many are living actually outside the city while working here. I mean, it would be a rare thing for a junior academic need to be able to afford Cambridge prices nowadays. And I, you know, I say that as somebody who grew up here in the city and, and it has radically changed. So Neve, the bulk of your research deals with what you call financialization. Can you tell me what that means? Well, in a broad sense, it deals with um, the spread of financial logic from financial domains, which are typically banks, um, lending institutions, to non-financial areas of life. And the focus for some people of that kind of research is how this manifests at a, at a broader level in, in corporations or in trade. My own work deals with household finance and the increasing numbers and kinds of risks that households take into account when they do their budgeting and when they make decisions about saving and spending. Now you call those people, all of us, everyday entrepreneurs, which I think is an amazing title and I hadn't thought of myself as an everyday entrepreneur, but you're arguing that essentially by, for example, having a mortgage or a credit card or taking on debt or having a private pension, that is what we're doing. We're tying our futures and our fortunes to something much bigger than us, basically the stock market. Yes, I think there's been a movement, and so it may not necessarily be a conscious decision on the part of households to think of themselves in these terms, but I think what something like the spread of finance means is that increasingly, because people are saving through something like a private pension, for example, which will be linked to the performance of the market, now the kinds of decisions that they have to make about saving are linked to fluctuations and volatility that they sometimes have very little understanding of and in many more cases even less control over. I was really struck in one of the papers that I read from you, you quote the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, saying that yes indeed risk has transferred. Households, you and I, have become this shock absorber. The buck literally stops with us. We cannot repackage our debt and sell it yes. on. Here we are holding it, left holding the baby at the That's end. Correct. Everything else can be bailed out. Big banks, uh, trading firms, pension funds, insurance brokers, but we can't. So here we are then, Neve, as, as you say, shock absorbers for the markets. Yes. This hasn't always been the case. When did it happen? What kind of timeline are we talking about? Well, I think the standard definition is usually about 
over the last 40 years in the United Kingdom. It certainly corresponds in some sense with the election of Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister in uh -huh. 1979. It's important to note, of course, that she was not necessarily an advocate of widespread personal credit um, and the debt that was related to that in part because she believed pretty strongly that most people would not be able to manage it that well. But other economic policies embarked on by her government for the sake of liberalizing financial markets in the United Kingdom with the aim of making them more competitive had the effect that credit markets opened up and the British financial markets were um, increasingly affected by and interacted with global financial markets. And the result of that was that something like consumer credit became quite freely available over the course of the 1980s, really. And of course, she was encouraging people as well, Thatcher, to opt in to this party by, for example, privatisation of certain things like British Gas, British Telecom in the early 80s. Three million, four million people bought shares in yes. those flotations. That was probably the first time for most of those people that they'd ever bought shares or gambled on the market in yes, that way. that is correct. Um, and I think the main drive there comes back a little bit more to that entrepreneurial sensibility that we talked about earlier because the aim was that as a result of the privatization of companies, employees would be able to buy shares and the Conservatives hoped as a result would have a stake in the performance of their companies and would be inspired to be hardworking, to be innovative um, because their fortunes would improve as a result of the improvement in share prices that it was hoped that they would purchase. Of course, in reality, a lot of new investors sold their shares fairly quickly right. thereafter to the benefit of institutional investors. So it was not immediately clear that the, the, the drive to, to turn people into sort of everyday entrepreneurs in that respect was quite as fulfilling as it might have been. But in the sector of housing, for example, something similar was going on with Thatcher's landmark policy about the right to buy, oh, that yes. famous phrase that you know was echoing right through the 80s, the right to buy your council, your state-owned home. Yes. How successful was that? Well, I think it was fairly widely taken up um, and it was viewed as quite successful by the Conservative Party due to the fact that it took control away from um, local authorities in order to give working families a stake in their communities by owning property, which again, they could invest in, they could put work into something that would ground them so that they felt like they had something worth preserving it came with that burden of being effectively cast adrift from the state. They were on their own. If their roof needed fixing, they had to find the money for that themselves. And it, this was incredibly new for a whole swathe of society. And of course, that stems from Thatcher's notion that, you know, it is everyone's moral duty to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But the flip side of that is, of course, that people become much more isolated and financial affairs in some way become more private. So if you own a home or you have a credit card debt, 
that's your responsibility. There is no sense that the state or a work union or a community will be there to catch you. Yes, and something like um, home ownership or indeed the ability to take that level of responsibility for financial affairs of oneself or one's household was really a cornerstone of policy, the idea that something like the state was merely interfering. Um, and so there was certainly the possibility that many people would struggle immensely with that, which she viewed as being necessary um, in order that people would have opportunities that she didn't feel that they previously had. When it goes wrong, when it gets difficult, that becomes what super they scary. What and they have to fall back on. Exactly, yes. and we're seeing that again now, you know, and I know you focus very much on, uh, in your work, on the 2008 global financial crash and beyond, and we're still living the shocks of that now, plus a whole year of pandemic on top of that. People are really struggling in Britain this year, in this city, as elsewhere. And I think 40 years of being told stand on your own two feet is making individuals feel cast adrift. I think that there can certainly be um, an individual feeling of helplessness in that respect. It's definitely reflected in broader trends that sort of demonstrate that uh, for many it's just difficult to meet basic cost of living, which is due in part to a rising cost of living such as housing prices, rental prices. Indeed, you tend to find that in general, people might be spending about two-thirds of their income on costs associated with housing alone. How much should it be? About one-third. So it's double what people can really comfortably manage? Yes. Okay. So wages are not really keeping pace with growing cost of living. And that's putting people in quite a difficult situation because it means that they're often reliant on something like credit to pay bills basic bills. Yes, um, just literally month to month. Yeah. And things that can't be pushed further down the road, for example, like a gas or an electric or yes. a water bill or a council tax have to be paid. Yes. That's and so they're cutting back on things where there is a tiny margin of wriggle room, which is things like food. Yes, food insecurity is quite a noticeable problem in that respect, because it is one cost where you sometimes feel like you have some ability to alter or fluctuate with, even though, of course, it leads to incredibly difficult problems. I was looking into this ahead of talking to you, and I mean, the Trussell Trust, which is the charity that guides food bank use in the UK, is saying that now, today, 2021 in the UK, two million people are accessing food banks. And in the seven years between 2012 and 2019, the number of children obtaining food from food banks has more than tripled in the last seven years. I mean, it, is the roots of this 40 years ago or did the real crisis happen in 2008? I think 2008 is certainly considered to be a tipping point in that it sort of brought to a head a lot of problems that had started to develop over 40 years ago in terms of the increasing insecurity that a lot of households were experiencing because benefits were either being rolled back or restructured in many cases, again restructured in a sort of way that required people to adopt a certain level of risk in their lives. 
in order to be able to meet them. For example, something like taking on a mortgage in order to buy property rather than renting was certainly encouraged, but that came with a lot of difficulties for people who had a hard time making regular on-time payments. And that kind of thing results in the loss of a home for people and the subsequent loss of a way of life. The famous subprime problem in the States, which to some degree, we weren't calling it subprime here, but that's what was going on, wasn't it? Yes. Well, it's often called sort of the shadow banking sector or market-based finance. Um, okay. It involves pricing for risk, the idea that people who might not have been able to afford loans, mortgages, or credit before can be priced into the market by charging higher interest rates and fees, which are meant to cover the possibility that they will default on their obligations so that the lending institution ostensibly will not make a loss. Which means, to put it a different way, it is actually incredibly expensive to be poor. Yes. Because if you would like a mortgage or you do need credit, you're going to be charged an enormous rate of interest and quite stringent payback structure, much more so than somebody who has a more solid or attractive credit rating. So yes, they're saying, right. come and join the party, but they're making it so difficult. And then up, up it goes. There. If these people also have a more unstable form of work, yes. for example, the famous zero hours contracts that we've yeah. heard of, there's no margin for that kind of increase. And these are exactly the sort of variables that are likely to uh, classify you as a high risk to default if you do borrow. So it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy right. in a way. And is there any push amongst economists or government advisors, is there any push to sort of say, this is actually so deeply unfair and so deeply problematic? Well, it's, it's certainly a very large problem that must be tackled in many spheres. And following the 2008 financial crisis, there were obviously international um, efforts to ensure that, that systems were a little bit more robust, that they could withstand financial stress the systems can, but can we? Well, yes, and that's, that's where a lot of the focus has been. There has certainly been interest in imposing tighter regulations on something like high-risk borrowing. But does that then result in the availability of a better financial product to customers in those markets? That's not altogether clear. In your paper, you said it's per household debt now standing in the UK is £60,720. Yes. That's what we're holding yes. per household. Including mortgage debt, yes. Yes, it's, and it is indicative, I think, of a problem in which people are certainly reliant on these financial products. This is not just a question of people being frivolous about their spending or of wanting to take out credit because it will give them even more cash effectively to buy what they like. It is indicative of people who don't always have the means at hand as a result of something like job insecurity, insufficient full-time jobs being created, for example, that, that pay good wages and provide adequate benefits that leaves people in quite a precarious situation. And so the clawing back of 
the financial products that sort of got people into the position in which they had racked up huge levels of debt that they could not deal with. It's only one part of the problem, and removing them does not remove altogether the problem of a new reliance that people have on these kinds of products. So when this great movement towards financialization, as we're calling it, began, let's say 40 years ago in the UK, what was the great plan? It hasn't turned out perhaps the way Thatcher imagined it, but what was the goal? I don't know whether uh, Thatcher specifically envisioned something like financialization. I think what she was probably responding to would have been inflation and indeed something that still rings true today in terms of the problem of high cost of living from the perspective of frustration, I suppose, with excessive government spending, with union demands for things like higher pay, which did not reflect at the time the productivity of the British economy and the concern that the Conservatives had at the time was that increasing workers' pay without increasing productivity would only lead to further increases in the cost of goods, for example, because if you had to pay employees more, then things would inevitably get more expensive. And so the only way that they saw to reduce that problem was to limit government spending while encouraging industrial innovation in various sectors in the hope of spurring productivity and employee interest in the performance of the firms that they worked for in the hope that this would lead to more profitability while limiting inflation. Thatcher, of course, famously the first ever female UK Prime Minister, famously a grocer's daughter, famously fond of comparing the economy to balancing a household budget. She was speaking directly to the people. I think she wanted people to be able to appreciate what was going on at a national level in ways that would be very relatable to them. And that certainly helped in order to make the narrative that the Conservatives had about the economic crises facing the country at that time as something that could be understood both by sort of everyday people right. and also directly helped by their actions and the kinds of things that they did both to reduce their own spending and to increase their productivity at work and to take an interest in what was going on with the national economy as a result. Right, and for a while that was tremendously successful. In your book, which I know is coming out uh, later this year, and it's called Class and Inequality in the Age of Finance, I know you've got an entire chapter dedicated to what you call discourse. In other words, the storytelling of economics, the messaging, and it really does shape the way not only we live, but that we spend, we save, that we prepare for our future. Can you tell me a bit more about that? 
Yes, well, I think there's a growing appreciation in uh, policy studies and analysis that the kinds of issues that um, governments and their oppositions deal with are sort of so complex that the way that they're typically dealt with is through a sort of comprehensive framing device that allows them to present issues in a way that will both be understandable to the general population that they're trying to address and also convince them of uh, the efficacy of their policy and campaign promises. So the rightness of it, the sort of the right to buy, I mean it's so simple isn't it, such genius, it really did have such a terribly long life because it was just so simple. Yes, it really appealed to a sort of sensibility that a lot of, and the Conservatives were very proud of this, former Labour voters could get on board with. Um, people who had worked hard their whole lives maybe felt that being able to own a home would be a reward uh, for what they had done and would give them a certain amount of freedom that they hadn't previously had uh, as a result of renting from the council. And so economic uncertainty in that case is framed as something that can be dealt with on an individual level by encouraging policies that would promote prosperity and comfort for a working class that was in the early stages of the Thatcher government dealing with constant job-related uncertainty, strikes, and uncertainty about housing as well. And so being able to to construct a narrative about the importance of individual innovation, the freedom to be able to do things unimpeded by what local councils were requiring of you in order to live in council housing, that was a very important way of framing the way out of problems like the winter of discontent, economic slowdown, national strikes that the Conservatives envisioned. The other very effective storytellers were of course New Labour under Tony Blair. A lot yes, of that correct. indeed was some kind of continuation from Thatcherism in terms of the power of the story. Yes, there, there's a lot of continuity in many ways uh, between what New Labour was doing and with Thatcherite policies as they develop over her premiership. Of course, what New Labour did was to frame their electoral victory and throughout their campaign their plans as sort of a third way between a more old-fashioned bureaucratic Labour Party with the sort of tinges of socialism that had become increasingly unacceptable at some level, but also as being separate from the really highly individualistic approach that Thatcher had taken. There's a slight shift in language to something like a stakeholder society for somebody like Tony Blair as opposed to um, Thatcher had adopted uh, Anthony Eden's notion of property owning democracy and popular capitalism. So Thatcher's saying we can all be shareholders, Tony Blair's saying we can all be stakeholders. Yes. And then another big narrative of course that we've just lived through, that of Brexit, the Leave camp just had a better story. And the a Stay very... camp of David Cameron was all over the place. Yes, it's parsimonious, I suppose, to take back control. I mean, of course, what taking back control looks like in the end, once you go through with it, uh, turns out to be a lot more complicated than was ever advertised at the point of the referendum. And ultimately, what it will come down to will be how convincing, how parsimonious, 
how useful is the narrative in explaining circumstances where there's a great deal of uncertainty or crisis when people want to hear a clear explanation about how they're going to get out of a situation or how it will be improved. Right. Does it resonate with you or doesn't it? Does it speak to you or doesn't it? Yes. One of the big stories in the UK in recent years, of the last 10 years, certainly is the story of austerity. We have all got to cut back. We have yes. all got to reduce the soaring national debt. Yes. And therefore, David Cameron at the time said, OK, everybody, austerity, the age of austerity. And we are barely coming out of that now. Well, we're just emerging from it, apparently, in 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. So really, it's been 10 years of massive national belt tightening. I mean, everybody got their budget slashed in austerity, but the people that really got their budget slashed were the local councils. Who are providers of services on the ground in many cases. Right, so we're talking libraries, 800 of those have closed over the UK in the last 10 years. We're yes. talking bus routes, we're talking uh, litter collection, we're talking social services, additional support with people with, for additional needs. Yes. I know that your research, you're working quite closely with two local councils on various ways to tackle this or, or reshape it. Can you tell me who you're working with and what you found? Yes, I have research partnerships uh, both with Allerdale Borough Council and Peterborough City Council. Allerdale, Allerdale is up in Cumbria. Right, okay. And Peterborough is, of course, just north of Cambridge. And I think a problem that is facing local authorities on the whole is that they are dealing increasingly with the fallout of the personal debt crisis right. um, because of the difficulty that a lot of people find themselves in. They are seeing a lot of missed payments on bills, for example, but they're also seeing an increased demand on services at the same time as they are facing substantial cuts to providing those services. In some cases, they actually have obligations to provide a certain level of assistance handed down by central government. So the 2017 Homelessness Act, for example, required that local authorities um, be able to provide assistance or housing to individuals and households on the verge of becoming homeless. But as a result of the Right to Buy Act, they are also operating with substantially reduced housing supply. So, so people have bought their council homes years ago, or, yes. or possibly even recently. Yes, the, the policy was reinstated under David Cameron. Right, so the houses are going off the market, the council can't use them, can't build back others quickly enough. Yes. Massive surge in demand, plus then this legal obligation that you are responsible for housing people in your own backyard for these local councils. Yes. And so what do we end up with? I think they found that it's hard to gauge the extent of the problem that they're dealing with because, of course, at one point, people who were dealing with debt or on the verge of homelessness might have been people who were facing sort of chronic unemployment or somebody who had had substantial upheaval, such as the death of a breadwinner in the family. Increasingly, these days, 
that can come uh, simply from being unable to to consistently make payments right, on because your accommodation you might be on a zero hours the, contract. Yes, in in the in the private rented sector, and so as a result, councils are dealing with an influx of people who are requesting services, but increasingly they don't know how to anticipate what that demand is going to look like right. because we're not dealing now with people on the fringes of society who maybe conform to uh, certain kinds of characteristics that might lead them to be in debt, but with people who have multiple jobs or full-time jobs who are still struggling to make ends meet and as a result may need this kind of assistance. So the words that are coming back again and again, Neva, precariousness, volatility, insecurity, housing, obviously a massive part of that, food, obviously a massive part of that. In your work, you contrast that with a, with a more ideal situation, which you call steadiness. Just that ability, not only for councils to predict what's coming, but for people to predict what's coming in their life. Do you see steadiness returning anytime soon? I think it will be a long way off and I think something like the pandemic has really highlighted that for most people. Economic recovery itself may be a long time coming and the problems may be felt for years to come and as a result I suspect that there will be a certain amount of uncertainty that people have to deal with in their everyday lives in much the same way that life chances after the financial crisis have never really fully recovered. What led you to economics? Because I know you did your first degree in Canada, but you're an economic sociologist. How did you come to put those two together? It's very easy to separate the two of them in spite of the fact that, as I think that um, the research I'm working on right now shows, there is such a social determinant to what happens in economic life and it's very important to consider the way that you know, the social realm doesn't necessarily correspond neatly with predictive models about how people behave. There are many motivations uh, for the reason that people do things that they do. In a lot of cases, the taking on of such high levels of credit leading to huge levels of debt is an incredibly irrational thing to do, but we know that often people who do it are faced with incredibly hard choices about how they're going to make ends meet, and those are very important to consider in understanding that kind of crisis. So for you, it was the fascination with people that came first and the numbers that came afterwards? I think that they're probably ultimately inseparable, Okay. which is why such an interdisciplinary approach like that is incredibly useful. You found your natural home then at Crash, which loves yes. that kind of out-of-the-box thinking. How has being here in Cambridge, I mean, I know you arrived here, I think, 2012? 2012. You told me. Okay, so four years after the financial crash, you arrived right. in what was a pretty rocky, damaged country. What kind of UK did you find? What kind of Cambridge did you find? What did you think about us when you arrived? 
I suppose there are probably two stories in a way that are happening there because on one hand there is the politics of austerity which is all I've ever known of the UK in terms of my right. experiences here and then there is the very personal experience of coming to a new place like Cambridge. Did you find it overwhelming? Not overwhelming, just very interesting at sort of every turn, I think. Okay. Even in spite of having done two degrees before, the university experience and the culture was quite different to anything that I had experienced in the Canadian system. Um, something like the college system, for example, doesn't really exist except in a few exceptional cases in a place like Canada. And so that level of interaction between so many people who work in different fields that have absolutely nothing to do with your own in some cases, and the kinds of connections and friendships that you can build that way is very powerful and very important. In addition, I think, to the fact that even uh, the departmental and faculty structure lends itself to the possibility for interdisciplinary study. Not, not everybody necessarily does it because some people have quite focused or specialized areas of research, but for anybody who, who does things like I do, which overlap elsewhere, there's certainly the possibility uh, for a lot of conversations. Now, you might be cheered up to know, Neve, that another Canadian is bringing a book out right now, same as you, Mark Carney, of course, former governor of the Bank of England. He's just published something called Values, Building a Better World for All. And rather astonishingly, for a former governor of the Bank of England, he's saying what really needs to happen coming out of austerity, coming out of this pandemic, is we rethink society as a place of purpose before profit. Right. And he's saying if we don't realign how we think about finance and how finance works, we cannot deal with what he's identifying as the three gigantic global challenges we're facing. And he's listing the financial crash of 2008, the COVID pandemic right now, and the climate emergency. Yes. So he's raising the alarm, as are you, in terms of let's look for different ways of understanding this picture? I think that there's certainly a growing appreciation that people who struggle uh, financially or in many other ways don't simply struggle on their own and that the difficulties they face have ramifications at other levels both socially and economically and politically, sometimes in the case of large-scale unrest as a result of inadequate conditions and a feeling of hopelessness associated with that. I see in my work with local authorities both, in some cases, there's the more straightforward desire to be able to help people because they are struggling and there is also an understanding that the uncertainty faced by households is magnified at the local level when you are dealing with a situation like we discussed before where you can't anticipate how many households are going to require services because it is just simply too variable and so there is a growing awareness and appreciation of the fact that it's not simply a case of 
people who don't do enough for themselves being left behind until they are motivated to do something about their situation, but of uh, the difficulties that this produces on a social level and a need to do better in a way that provides more security and more predictability, sustainability effectively, whether that happens at the economic level or whether it happens at the environmental level, which is something that is being taken note of even in financial circles. So there's, there's certainly a, a drive to reduce this kind of uncertainty, I think, from many different levels and many different sectors. One of the conclusions I believe Mark Carney is reaching in his book is that any good society of the future needs to be built on three fairnesses. He says there needs to be fairness between generations, fairness in the distribution of income, and fairness in the distribution of life chances. Right. And life chances is the really tricky one. It would seem that the the idea of fairness in the distribution of life chances is something very much that the University of Cambridge is now attempting to address and also here Lucy Cavendish College is attempting to address with this um, new building work new that you showed me yes. earlier. Historically Lucy Cavendish has been a mature college that admits women from the age of 21 initially intended to address a gap when it was founded in the fact that a lot of women who left school at the time might not have been able to go to university and so may have returned at a later age to receive their education. Now, obviously, the gap that they seek to address has to do with students from a multiplicity of, of underrepresented backgrounds, either relating to class and geographic region in the United Kingdom, to ethnicity, simply people who have not necessarily been given all of the opportunities that they might have had to really hone their academic talents. And to allow them to really fly when they get here. Yes. There's the idea of the foundation year, I think, which I know Lucy Cavendish is supporting. Yes, which is a year that would precede the normal degree work in order to give people who possess a lot of talent and knowledge, but may not have come from schools which provided them with the appropriate chances or background to really gain the skills that they will need to succeed in a university environment like Cambridge. And just the confidence. Yes, certainly, to get to know the kind of people that they will be interacting with and to really develop or uncover skills that they hadn't necessarily appreciated they had. And of course, the greater number of perspectives brought to the table, the richer the research, surely. Certainly, as an academic, it will be incredibly beneficial for the kinds of perspectives brought to research and even the kinds of things that people consider and think to research that may not otherwise be addressed. Well, I certainly hope that your voice and that of Mark Carney and everybody else who's working to return us to steadiness in some way, um, whether it's at a local council, whether it's a food bank plugging an immediate need, whether it's Cambridge trying to widen its access, make itself more representative of full society, saying, yes, there is a place for you here. Yes. I very, very much hope that you're right. Dr. Neve Mulcahy, thank you so much indeed for sharing your thought lines with us today. Thank you. Thought 
Pipelines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Thank you.